0: Welcome back to another episode of Why the Flag, the show that explores the stories behind the flags and how these symbols impact our world, our histories, and ourselves. I'm Simon Mullen, and this is part two of our special two-part series on the Russian flag, Czar's and the Third Rome. If you haven't listened to part one, I strongly recommend that you pause right here and listen to the first episode in the series before you dive into part two. And one more note. To avoid confusion, we'll be using dates according to the calendar we use today, not the old-style calendar used in Russia before the 1917 revolution. So, when we talk about the February revolution taking place in March, or the October revolution kicking off in November, know that we're using new style as opposed to old. And finally, please excuse my poor Russian pronunciations. I'm doing my best. Now let's get into it. On part one... We told the story of how Russia came to be, how it rose from a Viking colony in the 9th century to a vast empire that covered one-eighth of the world's landmass, and we explored the first four flags of Russia and the role each one plays in shaping the narrative of their history. We followed the double-headed eagle from Albania to the Russian Empire, where they used Roman symbolism as both an anchor of their legitimacy and as a weapon of imperial power, when they dubbed themselves the Tsars the Caesars of the Third Rome. We discussed the banner of the most gracious savior, the flag of Ivan the Terrible, and how it was used as a symbol of divine conquest in the early 16th century. We explored Tsar Peter the Great's imperial standard with a black, double-headed eagle that forever tied Russian heritage to the legacy of the Byzantine Empire. We also examined the political and psychological impact of the black, yellow, and white banner of Alexander II's Russian Empire which he unveiled during the height of 19th century European nationalism. And of course, we told the real story of the white, blue, and red tricolor that is flown as Russia's national flag today, and how it was in fact, ever anticlimactically, adopted from the banner of the Dutch during the long reign of Tsar Peter the Great. Today on part two, we will tell a very different story. This is not a tale of divine conquest or the history of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Instead, this is the story of Russia's rejection of said history, the abolishment of the divine, and the red banner of international socialist revolution that became the flag of an empire that dominated Eastern Europe, Eurasia, and much of the world for most of the 20th century. This is the story of the flag of the Soviet Union, the USSR, and how the hammer and sickle of proletarian revolution replaced the ancient double-headed eagle of imperial Russia for nearly 70 years. So on this episode, we'll explore how Russia's defeat in the Russo-Japanese War set the stage for popular revolution, and how their collapse to the Germans in World War I sealed the fate of the Russian Empire. We'll discuss how the red banner of the Paris Commune of 1871 became the symbol of Marxism and international communism during the Russian Revolution of 1917. And we'll dive into the true meaning of the hammer and sickle that adorned the Soviet flag and how Vladimir Lenin and his Bolsheviks transformed a flag of democracy and radical equality into a symbol of totalitarianism that cost the lives of tens of millions across Europe. And finally, we'll explore the resurrection of the Tsarist tricolor in the early 1990s, not as a symbol of the old monarchy, but of democracy and modernity, Only again to see the rise of Soviet symbolism to prop up the authoritarian regime of President Vladimir Putin. As always, we'll ask why the flag? And today, why the flag of the Soviet Union? We'll answer that and so much more when we come back. Welcome back to the show. Where we left off on part one, Tsar Nicholas II had declared the white, blue, and red tricolor banner the national flag of the Russian Empire during his coronation in 1896. His resurrection of Tsar Peter the Great's tricolor flag was a firm rejection of his grandfather Alexander II and his banner of black, yellow, and white. That short-lived flag was hated by the aristocracy because it stood for modernity and reform. And it was equally hated by the people because, well, Alexander II was a reactionary and repressive dictator. But early in Alexander II's reign, and under the banner of black, yellow, and white, he was hailed Alexander the Liberator. After all, he was the one who had freed the serfs and put an end to the backward feudal economy. Unwittingly, however, it was his own reforms that would light the spark for the first Russian revolution. Alexander II relied on journalists to rally support among the people for his domestic policies, so part of his reform was lifting some restrictions on the press. This act opened the door to liberals and nationalists who used the press to espouse the virtues of populism, radicalism, and the untapped power of the peasantry, and mold public opinion against the ideas of czardom, capitalism, and imperialism. This growing group of radical Russian intellectuals, professionals, peasants, and workers would be collectively known as Narodniks, or the populists, after the Russian word for the people, Narod. One of the earliest and most influential Narodnik authors to emerge from this time was a young journalist named Nikolai Chernyshevsky. Born in 1828, Chernyshevsky was an ardent socialist and populist, and he was heavily influenced by the early French socialist philosopher Charles Fourier. During his tenure as a journalist for a Russian political magazine called The Contemporary, Chernochevsky would often argue against the evils of serfdom and of private property, and he would urge the peasantry to rise up against the wealthy land-owning class. And although Chernyshevsky was far from an imperialist, he was actually an early and vocal supporter of Alexander II, whom he had hoped would reform Russian society. And move the nation closer to an egalitarian and modern state. But his patience with the new Tsar quickly wore out, and in 1861, Chernachevsky published an article saying, Everyone sincerely loving Russia has come to the conclusion that only by force could human rights be seized by the people from the grip of the Tsar. This was a step too far, and in 1862, Chernachevsky was arrested for publicly criticizing the Tsar. But his work was far from over. From his prison cell, he wrote and published a novel titled What is to be Done. It's about a woman who escapes a loveless marriage and leaves behind a life of oppression for one of independence and an equal and egalitarian relationship. But of course, this had a much deeper meaning. It was a blueprint for social change and one that promoted workers' rights, and it was regarded at the time as a, quote, handbook for radicalism. While this book got Chernyshevsky another seven years of hard labor, the novel became hugely popular among the Narodniks and the Russian socialists, and it ultimately influenced the creation of the left-wing terrorist organization that called themselves the People's Will. As Chernyshevsky languished in a Siberian prison camp, the People's Will were gaining strength among the intellectual and proletarian classes and putting their ideas of radical revolution through terror to the test. Most famously, it was four members of the People's Will who assassinated Tsar Alexander II on March 13, 1881, while his armored carriage was taking him to the Winter Palace of St. Petersburg. Six years later, an offshoot of the People's Will would strike again and target Alexander II's hardline conservative son, Tsar Alexander III. But this time, the conspirators were caught before they could even fire a shot. In March of 1877, The Tsar's police would arrest and execute a young man by the name of Sasha Ulyanov for the attempted assassination of the Tsar. But little did they know that this one act would change the course of Russian history forever. Sasha's execution at the hands of the state would radicalize his younger brother, Vladimir Ulyanov, who would then dedicate his life to the overthrow of the Tsarist regime. But you would know this boy better by his adopted alias, Vladimir Lenin. And nearly 30 years after his brother's execution by the Tsar, it would be Lenin, the founder of the Soviet Union, raising the red flag of the Soviet Republic over Moscow and Petrograd as the Tsar lay dead in a shallow grave. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. There'll be much more on Lenin later on. A few years later, when Nicholas II came to power in the 1890s, Russia was heading toward political disaster and economic collapse. Not only was Nicholas II an incompetent leader, but his ministers were comprised of hardliners and reactionaries from top to bottom, wary of the reforms dictated by Nicholas's grandfather, Alexander II. And while rapid industrialization was transforming the economies of Germany, Japan, and the United States, Russia found itself stuck in another era, with much of its massive population still rural peasants, working the land as they had done for centuries. This isn't to say that significant industry didn't come to Russia. In fact, by 1890, Russia had nearly 1.4 million factory workers who transformed the urban centers, like Moscow and St. Petersburg, into hubs of industry. Russia even had developed more railroad track than any other nation in Europe, but their problem was that their march to modernity was slow and unsteady. By the turn of the century, foreign imports grew faster than exports, and Russia simply could not compete commercially with their neighbors. Even the once-feared Russian army lacked the basic supplies and weapons it needed to face the rapidly modernizing armies on their borders. And this became ever clearer following Russia's humiliating military defeat at the hands of Emperor Meiji and the Japanese Empire. The Russo-Japanese War began on February 8, 1904. When the Japanese army staged a devastating surprise attack on the Russian naval base of Port Arthur. The Japanese had long been wary of Russian influence in East Asia, especially since Tsar Nicholas II supplied China with weapons against Japan during the First Sino Japanese War of 1895. Following Japan's victory over China, Russia, France, and Germany intervened and pushed Japan out of the Liadong Peninsula. This was a strategic area of northeast China on the Yellow Sea. Very close to the Korean border. To make a long story very short, Russia then moved in and occupied this peninsula, establishing the Port Arthur Naval Base in 1897 and making inroads into Korean territory in 1898. This all made Imperial Japan very anxious. For years, Japan had pursued negotiations with Russia over the status of Manchuria and Korea, but when these negotiations failed in 1904, Japan rolled the dice and attacked Port Arthur. Due to Russian overconfidence, false notions of white supremacy over their Asian enemies, logistical problems, and just the pure incompetent command of the Tsar and his cronies, the Russians were ultimately doomed. By the end of 1904, the Japanese Navy had sunk every ship in Russia's Pacific fleet. And on September 5, 1905, the Treaty of Portsmouth was signed confirming the Japanese victory over Russia, and marking the first time in modern history that an Asian nation defeated a European power. The Russo-Japanese War was deeply unpopular back home, long before their final defeat. Not only was Russia suffering from food and material shortages, the very peasants who farmed the food for the empire were drafted to fight, and they were drafted to fight against a nation they didn't know and for a cause they didn't understand. And this lack of manpower on the farms caused even greater scarcity across the country. So with the war being lost, the peasants starving, the industrial workers fed up with their conditions, minorities and Jews persecuted in the streets, and the intellectual class pushing for democratic reforms, rebellion was in the air. And it wouldn't be long before the red flag of revolution would fly in the streets and above the barricades in Russia's first fight for freedom. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. As the Russian military lost battle after battle against a determined Japanese foe, discontent with the czarist regime grew ever louder at home. Hungry peasants roamed the countryside, desperate industrial workers were striking en masse against unsafe conditions, and the students were openly advocating for democracy in the streets. This political unrest reached a boiling point on January 22nd, 1905 a date forever known to Russian history as Bloody Sunday and the opening salvos of the first Russian Revolution. On Sunday, January 22nd, an Orthodox priest and working-class activist named Father Georgi Gapon led a march of 50,000 striking workers to the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg to deliver a petition to the Tsar. The Father's petition was moderate by today's standards. Signed by 135,000 workers, The petition asked for an eight hour workday, a minimum wage of one ruble, a streamlining of the bureaucracy, and an elected assembly to introduce representative government into the Russian Empire. The strikers believed that if they marched peacefully to the palace, the Tsar would show solidarity with the working class, something that he had done so long before. But instead of getting an audience with the Tsar, his imperialist forces opened fire on the unarmed crowd, killing more than 200 people and wounding up to 800 more. This was a real turning point for the Russian people's relationship with their government. And it wasn't just a turn with Tsar Nicholas II as emperor, but with the whole idea of Tsardom as an institution itself. For years, the lower classes had rarely blamed the Tsar for their problems, and instead would turn their anger toward the nobility and the feudal lords. In fact, the Tsar was revered as the noble father. In times of need, The people would appeal to the Tsar through petition, and he had a tradition of responding in kind with promises to assist the people in their struggles. But Bloody Sunday changed all of that, and even though the Tsar never ordered his guards to open fire, hell, the guy wasn't even there. He was nonetheless directly blamed for the massacre at home and around the world. Like I said, the people they shot were unarmed, except for the banners, religious icons, and portraits of the Tsar that they carried in his honor on that day. But after Bloody Sunday, he was no longer the champion of the people, he was their adversary. And in the days and weeks following the massacre, countless riots and strikes lit the nation on fire, spurring what has been called the First Russian Revolution. By the end of January 1905, 400,000 workers went on strike, and soon those numbers would reach 2.5 million. And it wasn't just isolated in Russia proper but it was also in its occupied territories as well. Nationalist movements exploded among the non-Russian population, causing uprisings in Estonia, Finland, Latvia, and Poland. And many anti-revolutionary groups took to the streets as well, taking their anger out on the Jewish population, who they had blamed for the unrest. This resulted in state-sponsored pogroms that killed more than 3,000 Jews across the empire. Street fighting was rampant, and the Tsar and his government grew increasingly isolated. All of this happening at the same time that the Russo-Japanese War was raging in the East. In short, the First Russian Revolution was an explosive eruption of the social order, plunging the Russian Empire into a state of near-total anarchy. Now, the Revolution of 1905 is also when we see the widespread use of the red flag as a symbol of the Russian uprising. But contrary to later Soviet propaganda, The red flag would not have been seen as the flag of Marxism in particular, but instead it was a symbol of big tent socialism in general. So this would include everyone from left-wing labor organizers and unionists to communists and anarchists. 1905 was an uprising of the workers, the peasants, the middle class intelligentsia, and even mutinies across the army and navy. So the red banner itself was both a flag of socialism As well as a universal sign of revolt. All of this leads to another question. Where did the red flag really come from? Well, since ancient Rome, the red banner had been used to symbolize danger and insurgency. And in medieval France, the Oriflamme, the red flag of Saint Denis, that would be flown in battle to indicate that no prisoners would be taken and no quarter would be given to the enemy. But the red flag rose to international prominence as a symbol of popular uprising during the French Revolution of 1789, and became the banner of the anti-monarchists and the Republicans during the French Revolutions of 1832 and 1848. In fact, the red flag became so widely used by left-wing rebellions that it was flown in Russia as early as 1861, during a peasant uprising following Alexander II's emancipation of the serfs but the Red Flag really came into its own as a distinct banner of socialism during the Paris Commune in 1871. The Paris Commune was a revolutionary government that seized power in Paris while France was all but defeated in the Franco-Prussian War. In September of 1870, Emperor Napoleon III and his entire army were captured during the Battle of Sedan, effectively ending the Second French Empire. And then on September 19th, the Germans began a four-month-long siege of Paris, leaving 200,000 untrained National Guards as the last hope to defend the ancient French capital. Paris would fight on, but under the heavy bombardment of siege guns, they were forced to surrender on January 28, 1871. France's loss to Germany ushered in the end of Napoleon III and his Second French Empire, and in its place was the establishment of the Third Republic under President Adolphe Tierce. President Tierce was a conservative, and many in the French National Assembly were royalists and monarchists. And following the French surrender to the Germans, he decided that, to restore order to Paris, he would have to disarm the unruly National Guards, who were no longer needed to defend the fallen city. But this National Guard had no intention of giving up their weapons to a bunch of aristocrats. They may have been an untrained ragtag militia, But these were working class folk who had just fought and died to defend their homes. They were not about to give up their power to a government that they did not recognize, and for a future they had no real say in. On top of that, many of the National Guard were radicals and republicans, socialists and anarchists, and they had no desire to return to the status quo, let alone a return to monarchy that they so much despised. So instead, they rose up against the new government, chased their army to Versailles, and established their own independent government, the Commune of Paris, on March 18, 1871. One could argue that the Paris Commune was doomed from the beginning because its leaders did not share the same vision on how to govern the two million Parisians that they were now in charge of. In their ranks, they had neo-jacobins and blanquists, radical socialists and moderate republicans. Anarchists and liberals, so they didn't see eye to eye, but they did agree on blanket social principles and passed several meaningful decrees during their short reign. These decrees included the separation of church and state, the abolishment of child labor, the establishment of women's rights, the right for employees to run their own enterprises, which was something Karl Marx was very enthusiastic about, along with other political freedoms and social reforms that protected the worker the woman, the child, and the family. And for their flag, they rejected the old French tricolore and the weakness that it represented, and in its stead, they raised the red banner of revolution. But not just any revolution, socialist revolution. After the communes failed march on Versailles, where they intended to give a knockout blow to the Third Republic, the tides turned against Paris. The French army regrouped and marched into the capital. Known as Bloody Week, bitter street fighting between the Communards and the French army erupted between May 21st and May 28th, with tens of thousands killed, captured, and executed. By May 28th, the Paris Commune was destroyed, but its legend lived on in the hearts and minds of socialists across the world. With all of its failures and shortcomings, the Paris Commune showed the socialist world that working class rule was actually possible. And their flag, the Red Banner of Revolution, died in the blood of the martyrs, became the proud international symbol of the socialist dream. Speaking of the socialists, let's get back to where we were before I went off about the Paris Commune. And that, of course, was the Russian Revolution of 1905. Despite Soviet propaganda, the socialist parties in Russia didn't actually play that significant of a role in the First Revolution until the very late stages. And that is because most of their leaders weren't even there when the revolution broke out in January. Many were living in exile at the time, including the two future founding fathers of the Soviet Union, Vladimir Lenin and Leon Trotsky. When the revolution broke out in January 2005, Vladimir Lenin was hobnobbing around Western Europe, raising money from wealthy donors for his underground newspaper, and drumming up support for the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party. The RSDLP, the precursor to the Communist Party. Born to an upper middle class family and educated as a lawyer, Lenin is what my friend Jane would call a champagne communist. Lenin rose to prominence in Marxist circles around St. Petersburg in the early 1890s. But Lenin's real rise to notoriety came in 1903 during the second conference of the RSDLP in London. This is where he famously rejected liberalism and advocated for a strict, centralized party with an extremist ideology. In short, he called for armed revolution of the working class. He also wanted to limit party membership to those who would follow his charter without any argument, pay their membership dues on time, and take an active role in its organization. And it was on this critical procedural vote on party membership where Lenin won the majority, and his faction would become known as the Bolsheviks. The majority party in Russian, and the minority faction would become the Mensheviks. While the Mensheviks were radical Marxists, they were more moderate and were inclined to work with liberal Republicans and the bourgeois opposition. The Bolsheviks, on the other hand, under Lenin's leadership, called for a dictatorship of the proletariat and attracted the most extreme left wing of the party, including violent agitators and petty criminals like the future chairman, Joseph Stalin. So, as the revolution raged on back home in Russia, Lenin lived in safety in Western Europe. He would lead the Bolshevik party from abroad, and with his fiery rhetoric, he would agitate for violence and terrorism against the state and against the bourgeoisie. But this was not the revolution he hoped it to be. To Lenin's dismay, Tsar Nicholas II issued what is called the October Manifesto, where he promised expanded civil rights and the formation of an elected legislative body, called the Duma. And even though Nicholas would dissolve the Duma in 1906, the promise of these reforms was enough for many of the more moderate opposition to lay down their arms and allow the Romanov dynasty and the Tsarist tricolor flag to survive another day. Now, unlike Lenin, who only returned to Russia briefly at the end of 1905 to agitate for violence in St. Petersburg, only again to flee at the first smell of gunpowder, the man who had a more significant impact for the socialist cause was Lenin's closest and most hated friend, Leon Trotsky. Born Lev Bronstein in 1879, Trotsky was a Jewish intellectual and an avid Marxist from what is now Ukraine. Since his teenage years, Trotsky was a student activist and a revolutionary and one of the earliest members of the RSDLP. When the revolution broke out in January 2005, Trotsky was also in political exile with Lenin in Western Europe. But unlike Lenin, Trotsky snuck back into Russia in February to support both the Bolshevik and Menshevik factions during the revolution. One of his most important contributions, however, was helping organize and found one of the very first workers' councils in St. Petersburg. These councils would be a body of delegates who could represent the will of the workers. They could make demands, hold strikes, and yes, raise arms against the government. And across Russia, these workers' councils would be called the Soviets. As the revolution died down in November 1905, Leon Trotsky wasn't ready to hang up the gloves quite yet. He still had some fight in him. Now the chairman of the highly influential St. Petersburg Soviet, he refused to cede to the will of the Tsar and once again called for a mass general strike to help reignite the dying revolution. But the strike never came, and Trotsky and his entire Soviet leadership were arrested by imperial troops. The arrest of Trotsky was the final straw for the socialist revolutionaries 400 miles away in Moscow. Side by side, Bolshevik and Menshevik took up arms against the Tsar, capturing rail stations, building barricades in the streets, killing police, and even coming close to capturing the Kremlin itself. After nearly two weeks of intense street fighting, czarist reinforcements arrived on December 15th. And on December 19th, the workers surrendered, putting the revolutionary movement to bed for the next 12 years. However, even though the first Russian revolution failed to overthrow the Tsar, the Moscow uprising was the climax, the crescendo of the revolution. Vladimir Lenin would one day call it the, quote, great dress rehearsal for 1917. And it was from the Moscow uprising where the red flag would take on a special meaning for the Russian people. In the photographs and paintings of the scene, the banner of these Soviet revolutionaries is clear and undeniable. From the rafters and above the barricades in Moscow, the red flag would fly in opposition to the Tsarist tricolor banner. And from the failure of the First Revolution to the success of the one in 1917, the memory and images of those red flags would mean more than just revolution, but radical socialist revolution. In other words, the red flag now firmly belonged to the communists. In 1906, once again from the safety of Western Europe, Lenin would pen an essay called Lessons of the Moscow Uprising. In this essay, he would mention the red flag for the first time, describing the red banner as a heroic symbol of their movement. In an anecdote from the uprising, he writes, quote, On December 10th, two working girls carrying a red flag in a crowd of 10,000 people rushed out to meet the Cossacks, crying, Kill us! We will not surrender the flag alive! And the Cossacks were disconcerted and galloped away. These examples of courage and heroism should be impressed forever on the minds of the proletariat. He then ends his essay with both a premonition and a call to arms. Lenin writes, Let us remember that a great mass struggle is approaching. It will be an armed uprising. The masses must know that they are entering upon an armed, bloody, and desperate struggle. The ruthless extermination of the enemy will be their task. And in this momentous struggle, the party of the class conscious proletariat must discharge its duty to the full. And on this count, Lenin's prophecy would be correct. The 1905 revolution and the Moscow uprising did instill a sense of revolutionary zeal in many of those of the proletarian class. Although the revolution petered out in 1907, the Tsars' continued dissolving of the Dumas whenever they opposed him would drive many formerly moderate Russians into the radical camps, thus strengthening the Bolshevik position. And when the Bolshevik leader finally returned to Russia from exile on April 16, 1917, he would take the reins of a new Russian revolution and would raise their red battle flag as the symbol of his new Marxist nation. We'll continue the story when we come back. Welcome back to the show. When Russia entered World War I in 1914, Tsar Nicholas II was the absolute ruler of a vast Russian empire, an empire that stretched from Central Europe to the Pacific and from the edges of Afghanistan to the Arctic. The white, blue, and red tricolor flag, introduced by Peter the Great in 1700, was the national banner of the empire's nearly 150 million citizens. And the double headed eagle, the symbol that had tied their heritage to Byzantium and represented Moscow as the head of the Eastern Orthodox Church, had been the seal of the empire and the sign of the state since 1497. But in fewer than four years, it would all be erased. By summer 1918, four years after Nicholas II reluctantly marched the ill-prepared and ill-equipped Russian army into the war, the Russian empire would collapse and surrender to the Germans The Tsar and his family would be dead, the tricolor flag of Peter the Great would be replaced by the red banner of Bolshevism, and the old double-headed eagle would be replaced by the hammer and plow of Soviet communism. Before the war, one British general described the Russian Empire as the steamroller of Europe. With 1.4 million soldiers and up to 5 million reserves, Russia had the largest standing army in the world by a long shot. But in reality, the Russian Empire was a paper tiger, much as it had been during the Crimean War 60 years earlier. By 1914, Russia was still reeling from the First Revolution and was not nearly at full strength since their defeat in the Russo-Japanese War a decade prior. And of those 1.4 million men in uniform at the start of the war, nearly 800,000 didn't even have a rifle to train with, and many of those lucky ones who did were equipped with old-fashioned weapons from the 19th century. Russian men were often sent into battle unarmed, told to rush the front and just pick up the weapons of their fallen comrades when the time came. So, if the Russian army didn't have the weapons it needed to fight, nor the industrial capacity to support a long war against the mighty German Empire, why the hell did they go to war? Why did Tsar Nicholas II roll the dice and gamble away his empire when the cards were clearly stacked against him. The simple answer is that Russia went to war to defend Serbia following the Austro-Hungarian invasion in August of 1914, and thus bringing them into conflict with Germany. And while there were many other motivations for Russia's entry into the war, including their desire to control the Balkans, their military agreements with Britain and France against the Central Powers, mutual distrust and diplomatic failures, and even some Russian intentions to reclaim Constantinople for the Orthodox Church, we're not going to focus on any of that today. Instead, for the purposes of this show, I want to touch on another motivation for Russia's hurried entry into the war. This is a theme that we discuss on nearly every episode about national flags. And that, of course, is the toxic and intoxicating nature of nationalism. And specifically, in this case, it was the fervor of pan-Slavic nationalism that played a crucial role in driving the Russian Empire into a war that would ultimately be its downfall. Now, what exactly is Pan-Slavism? Pan-Slavism, as a political movement and philosophy, is an ideology that is focused on the advancement and unity of the Slavic peoples of Eastern Europe and Eurasia. Modern Pan-Slavism emerged in the first decades of the 19th century, following the end of the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 triggered by the rapid development of German nationalism and pan-German unification that the Slavs perceived as a threat to their own national interests. During the first Serbian uprising of 1804, pan-Slavism was the rallying cry of the Serbians who rose up against the occupying Ottoman Empire, gaining support of the Russian Empire who heeded the call of their ethnic cousins against the hated Muslim Turks. And after the principality of Serbia gained semi-independence from the Ottoman Empire, their 1835 constitution established the Serbian flag as a red, blue, and white tricolor banner, or simply put, the inverse of the Tsarist flag of the Russian Empire. The Serbians used the power of vexillology to pave the way for Pan-Slavism by creating a tangible symbol of the movement and developed an easily identifiable color scheme that all Slavic nationalists could now claim For their ethnic brethren. And it certainly didn't hurt that their flag paid homage to the most powerful empire in Eurasia, a way to pull at the heartstrings of their big Russian brother to the east, lest they need their help again in the future. Thirteen years later, the Pan-Slavic colors of blue, white, and red were reaffirmed at the first Pan-Slav Congress in 1848. With many Slavic peoples living under the empires of Germany, Austria, and Hungary at the time, the Pan-Slavic Congress was the first major push for Slavic national independence across Eastern Europe. And funny enough, although the delegates of the Congress were anti-Russian because of the empire's chauvinistic, colonial, and expansionist policies, they nonetheless adopted the Russian colors as the banner of Slavic nationalism because Russia was the most powerful Slavic empire. And by emulating her flag, they could forever tie their futures to the safety of Russia. And if you look at the flags of Croatia, the Czech Republic, Serbia, Slovakia, and Slovenia today, you'll notice one striking similarity. They all still carry the Pan-Slavic colors introduced at the Revolutionary Conference of 1848. While the Pan-Slav Congress ended in failure and with a violent breakup by the Austrian authorities, Slavic nationalism hit fever pitch again in 1876. With the young and unified German Empire on the rise and the old Ottoman Empire on the decline, the Slavic peoples of Serbia and Montenegro went to war to fight for their long-desired independence from the Turkish Sultan. Once again hearing the calls of pan-Slavic unity and exploiting the nationalist fervor to finally defeat their oldest enemy, the Russian Empire marched to war, securing the independence of both Montenegro and Serbia, and fortifying Russian influence over both Slavic nations. So, in 1908, when the dual monarchy of Austria-Hungary annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, it once again inflamed the passions of Serbians and Pan-Slavic nationalists who saw this land as rightfully belonging to the Slavs. And on June 28, 1914, in direct response to this annexation, terrorists from a Serbian nationalist group called the Black Hand assassinated the Archduke of Austria Franz Ferdinand, and his wife Sophie in the streets of Sarajevo. And when Austria-Hungary invaded Serbia in retaliation that summer, Tsar Nicholas II rushed his poorly trained, ill-equipped army to war in defense of their Serbian cousins and for the pride of the blue, white, and red banner of pan-Slavic nationalism. This is all-important context to understand why Russia felt such responsibility for Serbia at the turn of the century. Whether or not the feelings of Pan-Slavism among the Russians were real or it was just exploited for their own political standing, or most likely both, the truth is that the Russian Empire did spend tremendous blood and treasure throughout the 19th century to free Serbia from foreign control. And like I said earlier, while there are many complex reasons and motivations to enter the war in 1914, it's clear that the pull of Pan-Slavic responsibility and the need to preserve its status as a great power, pushed Russia to make the fateful decision to rush into a war they simply could not win. As the Great War ravaged Europe, Vladimir Lenin was once again far from the trenches and nowhere near the dangers of the battlefield. Instead, our revolutionary hero fled to neutral Switzerland in September 1914, armed not with a weapon, but with his own vitriol. And from his warm apartment he would use his pen to fan the flames of violence a world away in Russia. Lenin was distraught that socialist parties on both sides of the European conflict had rallied behind their governments in the war effort. Known as the Second International, delegates from socialist parties around the world had pledged to overthrow their governments if they had plunged their countries into an imperialist war. And Lenin saw these socialists who turned coat and rallied behind their warring governments as traitors to the cause. He railed against these pro-war socialists for betraying the working class and supporting a war between the hated empires where only the proletarian would pay the real price. Divided by war, the Second International would dissolve in 1916. Finding himself isolated at the height of the war, Lenin would shock the Marxist world by demanding that true socialists must transform the imperialist war into a civil war, In Lenin's eyes, the real enemy was not the poor German or Austrian soldier in the opposite trench. No, the real enemies were the capitalist governments back home in Berlin, Vienna, Washington, and Petrograd. Even though it was his own people drafted en masse to fight at the front, Lenin would openly advocate for total Russian defeat at the hands of the central powers. He believed that only through their demise could revolution truly get underway? And to Lenin's delight, Russia's defeat was only a matter of time. In early March of 1917, after years of military failures, German occupation, economic collapse, and food shortages across the empire, the people had had enough. Known as the February Revolution, liberals and socialists alike took to the streets of Petrograd to demand the end of the war the end of food rationing, and the end of czarism as we know it. Armed with sticks and rifles, and flying the red banner of socialist revolution, more than 250,000 workers took to the streets in a massive strike, completely shutting down industry in the Russian capital. By March 12th, the government resigned, and entire garrisons of Russian soldiers and Cossack mercenaries mutinied against the empire, and in turn, distributed weapons to the striking workers, who had swiftly taken control of the capital. With no army, no government, and with a people in open and armed rebellion, the Tsar had no other choice but to step down. And on March 15, 1917, Tsar Nicholas II abdicated the throne in favor of his brother Michael, who wisely refused the crown. And just like that, the Russian Empire was no more. Nicholas and his family were detained by the provisional government, and the Romanov dynasty came to an end. But the Tsar's abdication did not mean the immediate end of the war, nor did it mean the immediate end of the Tsarist flag. The Russian provisional government that was set up the day of Nicholas's abdication was a left-of-center government with some moderate socialists in their ranks. Left-of-center or not, they did continue to fly the Tsarist white, blue, and red flag, and even advocated for Russia's unpopular continuation in the Great War. They also kept the Byzantine double-headed eagle as their state coat of arms, but stripped it of its czarist heraldry, instead opting for a clean and simple eagle design, just as it was in the days of Ivan the Great. However, the provisional government wasn't the only government in town. They were forced to share power with the Petrograd Soviet which was the reincarnation of the St. Petersburg Soviet formed by Leon Trotsky in 1905. The Soviet claimed to be the authentic voice of the people, and claimed their political legitimacy as representing the will of the working class. They also rejected the tricolor banner, and in its stead, operated under the red flag of Soviet socialism. While the Petrograd Soviet were mainly Mensheviks, not radical Bolsheviks, they were able to work alongside the provisional government in an uneasy alliance of dual power in order to keep the peace. But they strongly advocated for the end of the war and for the redistribution of land and wealth to the proletarian classes. So here you have a single nation, but under two very different governments, and under two very different flags. But as the two sides argued, the carnage on the Eastern Front continued. It was a meat grinder for the Russian infantry. With German advances deep into Russian territory, and morale on the front lines at an all-time low, the Germans were now ready to unleash their secret weapon that would knock Russia out of the war once and for all. And this weapon's name was Vladimir Lenin. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. While Vladimir Lenin was abroad in Switzerland, our favorite armchair revolutionary chastised the provisional government and called the February Revolution nothing more than a revolution of the bourgeoisie. He reserved his harshest words for the leaders of the Petrograd Soviet, whom he despised as traitors to the revolution for working alongside the hated liberals and moderates of the provisional government and keeping Russia in the war. Lenin knew that if only he could make it back to Petrograd and take control of the Bolshevik factions, he could topple the government, end the war, and set Russia on the righteous path to Marxism. And guess what? The German government couldn't agree more. In fact, it was the Germans who had long funded his Bolshevik propaganda. More than that, it was German weapons and dynamite that crossed the border in collusion with the communist revolutionaries. In all, The German emperor, Kaiser Wilhelm II, spent around $582 million in today's money to weaken his wartime enemy by supporting Bolshevik revolutionary activity inside of Russia. And when the time came, it was the Germans that helped Lenin and his 32 Russian lieutenants cross Germany safely in a secret sealed rail car en route to Sweden, from where he would then head south to Russia for the final coup de grace. And so, on April 16, 1917, with the help of Kaiser Wilhelm, Lenin arrived in Petrograd with the promise of peace, bread, and land. Vladimir Lenin wasted no time putting others in harm's way for his own aims, and for the aims of the German government. Immediately upon arriving in Petrograd, formerly St. Petersburg, Lenin published what was called his April Thesis. The four main points of his April Thesis was this the immediate overthrow of the provisional government by the Soviets, a denunciation of the liberals and socialists who worked with the government, it demanded the implementation of new communist policies, and described Russia's entry into the war as being both predatory and imperialist. He even sent Red Guard Bolsheviks into the streets with antagonizing and demoralizing placards which read things like, The Germans are our brothers. They advocated for fraternization with the enemy, and even praised the defeat of the Russian army. With Vladimir Lenin openly advocating for a German victory over Russia, Germany's top army command wrote to its foreign office saying, quote, Lenin's entry into Russia was a success. He is working according to your wishes. Lenin's call for armed insurrection was initially met with outrage and even some violence, but as it became clear that the provisional government was not going to end hostilities with the Germans, and with inaction on promised land reforms and the ever increasing food shortages, Lenin's slogans like All Power to the Soviets were starting to ring loudly in the streets, and the red flag of Bolshevism once again became a ubiquitous sight across Moscow and Petrograd. But just as things were going his way, Lenin made his first big blunder. In mid July 1917, a spontaneous pro-Bolshevik anti-government rebellion tore through the streets of Petrograd. Following a disastrous Russian military offensive known as the Kerensky Offensive that ended in total defeat, hundreds of thousands of armed workers, sailors, and soldiers hoisted the red flag, demanding that all power be relinquished from the provisional government and handed over to the Soviets. But there was a major problem. The Soviets were run by Mensheviks and moderates, not Bolsheviks. And Lenin worried that his Bolshevik party did not have the political support to sustain a successful revolution at that time. So even though he had the backing of 500,000 in the streets, Lenin, this hopeless vacillator, refused to gamble and did not join the fight. Instead, as he cowered in his office the provisional government sent in troops to kill more than 700 of Lenin's most loyal supporters. To quell the revolution and destroy Bolshevik morale, the government went public with their investigation into Lenin as nothing more than an agent of the German Empire. And dozens of witnesses came forward with damning evidence against their Bolshevik leader. Ever fearful, Lenin once again hightailed out of Russia for Finland, while Trotsky went to jail for his role in the uprising. All seemed lost for Lenin and the Bolsheviks following what was called the July Days. The Tsar may have been deposed, but his imperial flag still flew on high from the government buildings, and the imperialist war was still killing millions of peasant soldiers just west of the Russian capital. But as luck would have it, lightning struck twice for Vladimir Lenin and his Bolsheviks, and this time he would not waste the opportunity. In August 1917, the government got wind of a right-wing military coup underway by Russia's anti-Bolshevik commander-in-chief, General Lavr Kornilov. In short, Kornilov's plot was simple. He was going to march his army right into Petrograd, eliminate the Soviets, destroy the Bolsheviks, and, quote, restore peace by rooting out all revolutionary activity. And when all of this was done, was going to transform the Russian government into a military dictatorship. But unfortunately for Kornilov, he lost the element of surprise. And on August 29th, knowing that his plot was foiled, Kornilov rushed the order to his army to capture the city. With his army advancing on Petrograd, the provisional government had no other choice than to get every man and woman they could find to defend the city from the coup. So they released the Bolshevik leaders from jail and distributed arms and ammunition to the members of the Soviets. Now armed to the teeth, the man put in charge of the Soviet militia was none other than the recently freed Leon Trotsky. But to the surprise of the provisional government, Kornilov's army never showed up. Instead, groups of unarmed workers met the troops as they marched on to Petrograd, and through this effort of fraternization, they convinced them not to take the city by force. After all, these hardened soldiers just spent years fighting against the Germans in the trenches and the last thing they wanted to do was turn their guns on their own citizens. So they simply deserted and went home. Kornilov and his officers were arrested and the coup was over without a shot ever being fired. While they had avoided a military coup, the provisional government was now left in a very precarious position. Not only were the Bolsheviks armed to the gills, And organized like never before, the provisional government was shown to be weak and incompetent. They couldn't even protect their capital city from a single brigade of renegade soldiers without arming the Bolsheviks and the workers at the front. So, support for the moderate government just totally collapsed. And in its place, a resurgence of left-wing populism took hold of Petrograd and the major cities of Russia, with the Bolsheviks taking control of the Soviets from the Mensheviks. In response, and to save face, the provisional government officially abolished the monarchy, and on September 14, 1917, they established the Russian Republic. But then they made two fatal mistakes. To the chagrin of the growing power of the Soviets, they once again elevated the Tsarist tricolor as the flag of their new republic, alongside the double-headed eagle. But worse yet they pressed forward with the unpopular and failing war against the Central Powers. The Russian Republic wouldn't even last two months. With Lenin back in Russia and Trotsky at the helm, the two began to plot the armed takeover of the Russian Republic. Military revolutionary committees were formed, the Bolshevik military organizations, known as the Voyenka, were trained, and the Red Guards, who were bands of worker militias loyal to Lenin, swelled their ranks to more than 200,000 men and women. And then, on November 7th, they struck at the heart of the new republic. With an overwhelming show of force, they captured government buildings and communication centers with very little resistance from the military. And for the climax of this revolutionary day, 40,000 Red Guards stormed the Winter Palace, where the government officially surrendered to the communist militia. Lenin's revolution had finally come. The date of the revolution was not an arbitrary choice. It was actually set to coincide with the Second Congress of Soviets, which was an official gathering of the workers' councils from across the country, hosted in Petrograd. And with a capital under armed Bolshevik control, the Second Congress of Soviets handed over power to the Bolsheviks, dissolved the provisional government, named Trotsky the foreign minister, and shows Vladimir Lenin as its head of state. They then declared itself to be the sole government of the new Russian Soviet Republic. The very next day, on November 8th, the Bolsheviks abolished private land ownership, nationalized private estates, and prohibited hired labor across the country. And most importantly, Lenin proposed an immediate withdrawal of Russian troops from the war, dissolving the Triple Entente which had bound Russia France, and Great Britain in common cause against German expansionism. And for the Germans, the Kaiser's investment in Vladimir Lenin was proving to be worth every ruble. On March 3, 1918, the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk officially ended hostilities between the Central Powers and Soviet Russia, cementing Russia's defeat in the Great War. And if you know anything about the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, It makes the harsh terms of the Treaty of Versailles look like child's play. Russia ceded their imperial claims to Armenia, Azerbaijan, Belarus, Estonia, Georgia, Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, and Ukraine, losing 34% of their population and handing over more than 50% of their industrial land. On top of that, they gave over a quarter of their oil fields to the Germans and paid 6 billion marks, as compensation for German losses in the war. But, however harsh these terms were, the war was finally over on the Eastern Front, and the Bolsheviks could focus their attention from the war to consolidating power at home. The Bolshevik Party rebranded themselves as the All-Union Communist Party and renamed their nation the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic, the RSFSR, becoming the first constitutionally Marxist nation on earth. This rebranding demanded a rejection of their czarist past, so a new flag was needed to represent their ideology at home and abroad. What Soviet Russia needed was a familiar symbol that could galvanize their followers with the memories of their brave revolutionary past. The Communist Party was devoutly atheist, so they needed a flag that was both iconoclastic and militant to stir the revolutionary fervor of the peasants and the proletarian alike. But most importantly, their flag would have to stand for more than just a single nation, but also for an ideology that saw no borders in its quest for progress. A flag that would be at the center of international socialism and could show the world that Marxist societies can and do exist, and that through Bolshevism, revolution is possible. So, on April 8, 1918, the young chairman of the Russian Communist Party, a man named Yakov Sverdlov, proposed a simple flag design that did all of this and more. He proposed to, quote, make our battle flag our national flag. His flag was adopted unanimously, and on April 14th, the decree on the banner of the RSFSR was signed into law, establishing the red banner as the official flag. Soviet Russia. But the Russia of spring 1918 was a mere shadow of the empire it had once been, and a far cry from the international superpower that it would one day become. While war with Germany was over, Trotsky's agreement to the egregious terms of Brest Litovsk had many on the right and left quite literally up in arms against the new Soviet government. And the All Union Communist Party would find themselves embroiled in another devastating war, not with Germany, but a civil war at home. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. The RSFSR, what we're going to be calling Soviet Russia for short, was born from armed revolution and came into its own during a time of terrible civil war. It should be no surprise then that the flag and heraldry of their new state were also their symbols of war. Around the same time that the red battle flag became the banner of their nation, Trotsky approved of a new military cockade to be worn by every soldier, and this was called the Badge of the Red Army Man. The badge was a red five-pointed star with a somewhat cartoonish gold hammer and gold plow at its center. The red star was said to symbolize the liberation of the workers from hunger, poverty, slavery, and, ironically, liberation from war. To cement this military symbology even further… The red star would be called the Star of Mars, named after the ancient Roman god of war. Finally, the plow and hammer were then to represent the military alliance of the worker and the peasant under the leadership of the Communist Party. In 1922, after the Civil War, the hammer and plow would be officially replaced by the simple hammer and sickle design that you would recognize today, and this symbol of military alliance would become the symbol of the party and of the state. The Russian Civil War began the day after the Bolshevik Revolution of November 7th, and this only intensified following Trotsky signing the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which devastated the Russian economy and ceded mass amounts of land to the hated Germans. On one side of the conflict, you had the Red Army of Soviet Russia fighting for the consolidation of Bolshevik control, and on the other, you had a complex web of dozens if not hundreds of anti-communist armed groups with no common ideology besides their shared hatred for said Bolshevism. This big tent opposition would be called the White Movement, a name most likely derived from the white band of the tricolor flag, which if you recall from the last episode, represented the divine right of monarchy. So naturally, this movement attracted the old monarchists, loyalists, And ultra nationalist factions who were horrified with the fall of the Tsarist order. With the Reds controlling much of Western Russia, the Whites in turn consolidated their power in the east and south of the country, where in September of 1918 they established what was called the Russian State. The White Russian State was a conservative and nationalist government with four defining objectives first, defeating the Communists, second, unifying all the old land of the Russian Empire lost in the war, third, the non-recognition of the peace treaty with Germany, and fourth, continuing the fight against the central powers. Even though the Romanovs had been murdered in July of that year, the Russian state resurrected the Tsarist tricolor as the banner of their new nation and reinstituted the Byzantine double-headed eagle with the shield of Moscow at its center as its national coat of arms. But what initially appeared as a resurgence of the old Russian order under its old flag turned out to be nothing but its final whimper. While it began as a conservative republic, the Russian state quickly devolved into a weak right-wing military dictatorship. And while the Russian state and the White Army had the financial and military backing of the Allied powers, including tens of thousands of Japanese, British, American, French, and Czechoslovakian troops, they simply could not match the sheer numbers or the extreme brutality of Trotsky's Red Army. During the Civil War, Lenin and Trotsky's campaign against the counter-revolutionaries and against anyone who crossed the Bolshevik party line was known as the Red Terror. This campaign of terror not only sought to eliminate political opposition by force, but their ruthlessness And sheer inhumanity was the point. On the one hand, you had public executions, mass hangings, slave labor in the gulags, and torture being used to deter political dissent. And on the other hand, the communists used terror tactics to swell the ranks of the Red Army by conscripting not just the workers, but the peasant class as well. You see, even though the Red Army badge showed the hammer and plow as an alliance between the peasant and the proletarian, the rural peasant classes weren't really down with Bolshevism. As a matter of fact, large swaths of the rural peasant class sided with neither the reds nor the whites, but instead they found common cause with the greens, an army of agrarian anarchists who fought to protect their land and private property from both sides. You see, it's been argued that the proletarian workers were more easily amenable to communism, because they had no land or property of their own. They had nothing to lose. But the peasants, who lived and worked on their own land, really had something very tangible to lose if and when the communists came to power. And that's something that we will see later on in this show. So, to overcome this rural opposition to conscription in the Red Army, Lenin and Trotsky resorted to taking their families hostage and forcing them to fight. Because if they didn't, well they and their families would be executed. The same terror tactics were used to persuade former Tsarist officers to join the Red Army, and it was all done to great success. At its peak, the Red Army grew to more than 5.5 million fighting men and women. And as the Allied forces finally left Russia at the end of 1920, it was only a matter of time before the Communists seized control of the entire nation from the Ural Mountains to the Pacific defeating the last holdouts of white army troops in June 1923. The Bolsheviks came to power in 1917, promising peace, land, and bread, after more than 2 million Russian men died in the terrible fighting of World War I. But by the end of the Russian Civil War, and thanks in good part to the Red Terror of Lenin and Trotsky, upwards of 12 million people would be killed, a majority of them just Russian peasants and civilians. Not to mention, Tsar Nicholas II, his wife the Tsarina, and their five children would all be executed by the communists on July 17, 1918, and their bodies would be buried in shallow, unmarked graves. In November 1918, the German Empire collapsed following their defeat in the Great War. And as the Germans left Eastern Europe, and as the Austro-Hungarian Empire disintegrated, the Red Army poured in to fill the power vacuum they left behind in the old imperial territories of the Russian Empire. Lenin was never content with communism ending at Russia's borders. Instead, he and Trotsky were both international communists who advocated for worldwide revolution with their Red Army as the tip of the spear. In 1919, Lenin founded the Communist International, known as Comintern, which sought armed revolution and global communism led by the Bolshevik Soviet Union. In one of their founding statutes, they say, The communist international sets itself the aim of fighting with all means, also with arms in hand, for the overthrow of the international bourgeoisie and for the creation of an international Soviet republic is a transition to the complete abolition of the state. And while it might seem far-fetched, They actually had reason to think that they would be successful. At the end of the First World War, and inspired by the Russian Revolution, a wave of communist uprisings were taking place across Western Europe and around the globe, including the revolution in Germany, an uprising in Hungary, and a failed socialist revolt in Italy. Not to mention communist revolutions in Spain, Belgium, Estonia, and Ireland, and lesser-known revolutions as far away as Mongolia, Persia, and South Africa. Between 1918 and 1921, the Red Army tried to push deeper into Europe to link up with the communists in Germany and spark a European-wide Bolshevik revolution. But unfortunately for the Red Army, Poland happened to be geographically in the way of their grand plan, and the Poles were not interested in yet another foreign occupation. For three years, Poland and Russia fought for supremacy of Eastern Europe, and although Soviet Russia was defeated in the Polish-Soviet War, ultimately stopping their advance to Germany, the Soviets did not walk away from the war empty-handed. They were able to hold on to large swaths of Ukraine and Belarus, and Soviet governments were quickly established there under the communist banner of the hammer and sickle. With global revolution out of reach for the moment, the Communist Party would just have to settle for an empire. On December 30, 1922, the Soviet Socialist Republics of Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Transcaucasia, which included Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, signed the Treaty on the Creation of the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, establishing the USSR. The Soviet Union was made up of many republics, but they would act as a single state, and under a common flag, and it's clear from their choice of flag that the establishment of the USSR was just one step towards Lenin's ultimate goal of a worldwide revolution. I'm telling you, their first flag leaves very little room for misinterpretation. At the center of the flag is a blue globe with all the nations of the world dyed Bolshevik red, and superimposed on the earth is a golden hammer and sickle. And above the globe sits the star of Mars, which in this context is to represent the spread of communism to the five continents. These symbols are then framed by wreaths of wheat, and the wheat is wrapped in red cloth on which the communist mantra is written in the six languages of the USSR. The words proletarians of the world unite are scrawled in Russian, Ukrainian, Belarusian, Georgian. Armenian, and Azerbaijani, and all of this is laid atop a red ground. While the flag would ultimately change, this symbol would remain the official coat of arms of the Soviet Union for its entirety, adding more national languages as the Soviet Union expanded over the years. And by the 1950s, Proletarians of the World Unite was etched in 15 languages to represent the 15 republics of the Soviet Union. By the standards of modern vexillography, what I just described to you is a hideously designed flag. But if you look past its poor design, the message is clear. The USSR, at its foundation, was an expansionist empire with the goal of spreading one-party rule communism on a global scale. While international revolution was Lenin's goal, he would not live to see it. With his body riddled with syphilis, and after suffering three major strokes in two years, Vladimir Lenin died in January 1924 at the age of 53. And his preserved, mummified body is still on public display in a mausoleum in Moscow, where he is interned along with an original red flag of the Paris Commune. Lenin's successor was 46-year-old Joseph Stalin. Born in Gori, Georgia in 1878, Stalin embraced Marxism while a student at seminary school in Tbilisi and became an ardent follower of Lenin's at an early age, becoming a known professional revolutionary and outlaw by the time he was 23. One of the things that made Stalin different from Lenin is that Stalin was not afraid to get his hands dirty. When he wasn't in prison or in exile, Stalin was out in the streets raising money for the Bolsheviks doing what he did best—robbery, kidnapping— extortion, and murder. In June of 1907, Stalin infamously led an armed robbery against a bank stagecoach in the city of Tiflis, escaping with 240,000 rubles, or nearly $5 million today. And in true Stalin fashion, he fled the scene after killing 40 and leaving another 50 injured. The ruthless but dependable ally of Lenin's, Stalin was appointed General Secretary of the Communist Party in 1922 and took the place of his childhood hero when he died in 1924. During Stalin's 30-year reign as General Secretary, he would transform the Soviet Union from a dictatorship of the proletariat to a totalitarian dictatorship of a single man, and at the same time elevating the young communist nation from a revolutionary state To a nuclear armed international superpower. After he stole the throne from Leon Trotsky in 1924, which is a fascinating story that we don't have time for today, Stalin employed a very different Marxist theory than that of his predecessor. He saw the failures of all the other communist revolutions in Europe as a lost cause, and he decided that Russia needed to focus on Russia and put aside this pipe dream of international revolution at least for the time being. So, in the mid-1920s, Stalin implemented a policy called Socialism in One Country. This was a national communism that focused on strengthening and centralizing the communist state at home, and ending Trotsky's policy of permanent revolution and global Marxism. Stalin feared, and for good reason, that at a time of global upheaval, the Soviet Union needed allies. And their overt support for armed revolutions abroad was only alienating Russia from the world stage. Trotsky was horrified at what Stalin was doing, and he became a vocal critic of the communist leader. And even though he was a founding father of the Soviet Union, like a communist Thomas Jefferson, Stalin exiled Trotsky from Russia in 1929. And on August 21, 1940, Stalin's assassin killed Trotsky with an axe to the head while he was living abroad in Mexico City. But again, that's a story for another time. Joseph Stalin's focus on national communism meant that the internationalist flag of the Soviet Union was no longer in line with state policy. As a banner of international revolution, it was too antagonistic to the West, whose support he may need just in case of another war with Germany. So, in April 1924, The Soviet Union updated their flag to a sleek and minimalist new design. They adopted a simple red banner with a gold hammer and sickle in its canton, and above the hammer and sickle sat the five sided star of Mars. But due to the state of global politics at the time, the star would have to take on a newer, softer meaning. It could no longer represent the spread of revolution to the five continents and continue to piss off the West. So instead, the star was rebranded to mean that the Communist Party was essentially the North Star that the workers and peasants can look to for unity, strength, and enlightenment. A star of peace and guidance for the downtrodden worker. And if that sounds like a bunch of baloney to you, you are right. Peace and enlightenment were not in the cards for those living under the red flag. Stalin implemented policies of rapid industrialization, And in order to feed and fund this ambitious plan, he turned to state control of agriculture, seizing the land from the peasants, and then increasing the demand of their output. This policy was merely a return to the serfdom of old, with a communist state taking the role of the noble landlord. His policy of collectivization did help industrialize Russia, but more than 7 million peasants starved to death as a result. Some were even starved purposefully by the state as a tool of terror. And these deaths, these deaths were just the beginning of what was to come. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Adolf Hitler became German Chancellor in January 1933, ushering in a new age of European fascism that was first introduced by Benito Mussolini in Italy in 1922. At the heart of this new German fascist ideology, besides their anti-Semitism, was a deep and violent hatred of socialism and the Soviet-style communism practiced in the USSR. While the name of Hitler's National Socialist German Workers' Party sounds like a movement that would align with Leninist ideology. National Socialism under the swastika flag was not an economic policy, but an ethnic one. And the use of workers in the party name had nothing to do with labor unions. It was merely used to rouse populist fervor among the working and middle classes. The Nazi economy was somewhere in between a centralized system like in the Soviet Union, and the capitalist one in the United States. But theirs was laser-focused on military spending and military rearmament. And when Hitler came to power, he actually privatized a large number of industries that were once state-owned under the Weimar government, including the banks, the railways, the steelworks, and others. And on top of that, the Nazis were these weird social Darwinists who derided the welfare system and who actively murdered the disabled and the homeless, even if they were of Aryan blood. So, no, national socialism had nothing to do with actual socialism, and in fact, as you know, they were violently incompatible forms of government. That aside, by the mid-1930s, Joseph Stalin was a genuine admirer of Adolf Hitler. He had political strength, a major cult of personality, and was overwhelmingly popular among the German people. But at the same time, Stalin was rightfully terrified by the swift rise of fascism and anti-communism in the growing military empires of Germany and Japan. So, how did Joseph Stalin handle this complex state of global affairs? Well, he decided to channel his emotions into a healthy state of utter paranoia, and he started to target those he suspected of opposition in his own ranks. And in 1934 after a popular Soviet politician named Sergei Kirov was assassinated by a disaffected ex-party member, Stalin felt his world closing in, and he started putting the pieces in motion for an era known as the Great Purge. To kick things off, on December 5, 1936, Joseph Stalin introduced a new Soviet constitution, which legally cemented the totalitarian control of the Communist Party under the General Secretary, who of course happened to be Joseph Stalin. This constitution also introduced an updated Soviet flag to represent this new Stalinist era. The hammer and sickle were redesigned for clarity, and as if in a show of force, the golden hammer, sickle, and star were enlarged in the canton, taking a much more prominent place against the crimson red ground. By decree of the new constitution, as general secretary... Stalin's word was the party, and the party was the country, and as such, the new flag of the Soviet Union, with its expanded party icons, would thus represent his expanded role in the future of the nation as he became dictator for life. Along with this new constitution and flag, Stalin's great purge was a campaign of terror aimed at removing all political rivals in opposition to his rule further solidifying his grasp over the Soviet Empire. Between 1936 and 1938, millions of suspected dissidents within the government, military, and the general populace were arrested, and torture, executions, and slave labor in the gulags became commonplace. At its height, the NKVD, the Soviet secret police, were carrying out more than a thousand executions a day, under the direct orders of Joseph Stalin. But it would be unfair to describe Stalin as merely a callous dictator. He was also ruthlessly logical. So along with his paranoia, there was another, more practical reason behind this great purge. According to the modern historian James Harris, Stalin believed that the European revolutions of 1789, 1848, and 1871 had failed because their leaders hadn't anticipated the ferocity of the counter-revolutionary reaction from the establishment. In other words, he saw prior revolutions fail because their leaders became complacent in victory, opening the doors to strong counter-revolution that brought about their downfall. And Stalin was determined not to make that same mistake. The Great Purge quickly moved beyond just members of the party and the military and began to target peasants ethnic minorities like, yes, Jews, intellectuals, scientists, and writers. Really just anyone who could possibly pose a threat to his rule. Even Western émigrés weren't safe from Stalin's reach. More than 140 American citizens, many of whom were arrested right outside the American embassy in Moscow, were tortured and executed on suspicion of counter-revolution. Now, as an American... What I find interesting from this period is just the sheer ambivalence the West showed towards Stalin's reign of terror. Sure, Western leaders paid lip service condemning the mass murder, but rarely did it make front page news. Today, much like during the Red Scares of the 1920s and the 1950s, the terms socialist and communist are lazily thrown about from the right wing as a catch-all insult for just about any person or policy they disagree with. And on top of that, the red flag and the hammer and sickle, have long been hated by all parties, a banner that at its core has been seen as embodying all that it means to be anti-American and anti-Western. That's why I find it so interesting that during this pivotal time in 1937 and 1938, that stories about some of the worst crimes, actual crimes committed in the name of actual socialism, were largely ignored, and when not ignored they were often downplayed as nothing but political propaganda against Stalin. Even in France, the revered philosopher of the left, Jean-Paul Sartre, actively ignored the horrors of the gulags, just so the French proletariat would not be discouraged in their own political struggle. But the reason we feigned ignorance about Stalin's crimes is as political as it is obvious. Here in the U.S., even though he was a red... Stalin was just the lovable Uncle Joe, the defender of Europe and a bulwark against Nazism. The sad truth was that if war was to come to Europe, the West would need Stalin as much as Stalin would need the West in their shared goal of defeating the spread of Hitlerian fascism. And of course, war did come. But to the great surprise of the Allies, Stalin and Hitler had agreed to what was called the molotov ribbentrop Pact a military non-aggression treaty that was supposed to last for 10 years. And to make matters even more confusing, the communists and the Nazis even collaborated together on the conquest of Poland. Sixteen days after Germany invaded Poland from the west, the Red Army poured in from the east, and they divided the occupied nation along the Bug River, giving Germany its living space and Russia its old domain from the time of the Tsarist Empire. But of course, this uneasy friendship was not meant to last. On June 22nd, 1941, Nazi Germany launched a massive surprise attack against the Soviet Union, bringing Russia into the war on the side of the Western Allies. And for the next four years, they would fight a war of merciless annihilation and conquest, with more than 27 million Soviet soldiers and civilians dying at the hands of the Axis powers. Among them, Millions of Soviet Jews who were enslaved and murdered in the camps. While the Nazis waged a war of ethnic cleansing and genocide against the Jewish and Slavic peoples, it's seldom discussed in history classes today that there were more than a million anti communist Soviet citizens who allied with Hitler and took up arms against the Soviet Union. So instead of walking through the general history of World War II on this show, let's talk about the anti Bolshevik Russians. Who rose up against Moscow and rallied their troops under the swastika flag and the old banners of the Tsar? One of the most infamous Russian Nazi collaborators was General Andrei Vlasov of the Red Army. After being captured by the Germans during the Siege of Leningrad in 1941, Vlasov switched sides and agreed to serve Nazi Germany by commanding the Russian Liberation Army, or the RLA which was comprised of Soviet POWs and civilian volunteers who had turned against Bolshevism. It's been said that the RLA actually began as propaganda literature for the Nazis in order to get Red Army soldiers to surrender and defect. And over time, as the population of Soviet POWs and defectors grew, this fake Russian army became a very real fighting force. At its strongest point in mid-1943 the RLA is said to have reached upwards of 750,000 men, men who often served as cannon fodder during battle. But unfortunately for the Wehrmacht, these RLA soldiers turned out not to be so effective when cracking down on the local Russian populations. So ironically, instead of combating communism, many RLA troops were actually sent to the Western Front. Some units were even on guard at Normandy during the D-Day invasion in 1944. Now, for their flag, the RLA used the banner of St. Andrew's Cross, a simple white flag with two blue diagonal bands forming a saltier, which looks something like an inverse of the Scottish flag today. This St. Andrew's flag was used as the ensign of the Russian Navy from 1712 to 1918, first introduced by Peter the Great for his famous Black Sea Fleet, and reinstated by Boris Yeltsin back in 1992. And during the Russian Civil War, this old Tsarist banner was flown by the anti-communist White Army, making it the perfect symbol of defection against the Soviets some 20 years later during World War II. But the RLA wasn't the only pro-Axis Russian army during the war. The First Russian National Army was a smaller but much more professional and well-supplied army founded by a Russian Finnish general by the name of Boris Smyslovsky. Born in St. Petersburg in 1897, General Smyslovsky was a monarchist through and through, and he dedicated his early career to rising through the ranks of the Imperial Russian Army. And then he made a real name for himself fighting against the Bolsheviks in the White Army during the Russian Civil War. After the White Army's defeat, he moved to Germany, where he was a vocal anti-communist and openly advocated for foreign intervention to free his nation from the grip of Marxism. So when Nazi Germany invaded the Soviet Union, General Smyslovsky did not let this golden opportunity pass him by. Between 1941 and 1945, he led more than 10,000 volunteers of the 1st Russian National Army on reconnaissance and intelligence missions, as well as bringing the fight directly to the Red Army behind enemy lines. This first Russian national army was officially part of the larger German Wehrmacht, so they fought under the swastika banner of the Nazis. But to identify their unit, they wore special Tsarist insignia on their uniforms, including a shoulder badge with the old tricolor flag, along with the word Russland, the German word for Russia. But these men didn't just wear the Tsarist flag, they lived it. As the war drew to an end in May 1945, this Rusland army, true to their monarchist beliefs, risked their lives by marching through Austria to pick up Grand Duke Vladimir Kirillovich, the last Romanov heir to the throne, and tried to smuggle him into neighboring Liechtenstein to avoid Soviet capture. Because of these Russian collaborators, the Grand Duke would avoid Soviet capture, and he would live in Austria under American protection until his death in 1992. And those of the first Russian national army who made it to Liechtenstein would live out the rest of their lives in peace, calling for the destruction of the Soviet state and proudly flying the nationalist white, blue, and red of the Tsar. But those who agreed to return to Soviet Russia would never be seen again. As for General Smyslovsky, he would live to the age of 91. In an interview he gave in 1985 he told the Associated Press that, even though he fought for the Wehrmacht and was awarded the Iron Cross and the Order of the German Eagle, he was still not a Nazi, but instead a true Russian patriot. Quote, what the Germans did was horrible. Hitler corrupted their souls. But the Soviets, they destroyed a whole nation. End quote. He died three years later in Liechtenstein, just before the fall of the Soviet Union. At the end of the Second World War, as the Germans retreated from their occupied territories, the Red Army poured in to fill the power vacuum they left behind, eventually conquering Berlin and large swaths of German territory. But unlike Lenin's ragtag Red Army after World War I, Stalin could hardly be stopped. By 1946, the Red Banner of Communism flew all the way from Russia's border on the Pacific to East Germany, and from Estonia and the Baltic in the north to Albania in the south. While some communist countries under Soviet occupation would be granted quasi-independence, like Albania, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Yugoslavia, and Poland, the rest were gobbled up under the hammer and sickle of the USSR and under the thumb of Joseph Stalin. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. As victors in the Second World War, Russia, along with its Soviet republics of Belarus and Ukraine, were granted status as the founding members of the United Nations. But things in the General Assembly quickly got awkward when every Soviet republic in the UN showed up with the same crimson red flag with a golden hammer and sickle. You see, after six years of war and occupation and conquest, the world did not want to appear that it would tolerate such overt totalitarianism and foreign occupation, precisely what this uniform flag was representing. So, in response to international pressure, the Soviet Union's 1947 constitution required that all Soviet republics were to design new national flags for their respective states. And in true Stalinist fashion, the Soviets quickly turned this pressure to their advantage. They could use these new flags as weapons to further solidify Communist Party control over their occupied territories. They determined that these new flags were meant to showcase the unique national identities of the republics, while also, and this is critical, reflecting the idea of a single and unified Soviet state. So, to show their loyalty to Moscow, the 14 republics outside of Russia adopted modified versions of the Crimson Banner while making minor adjustments to their flags to express their unique national character. For example, Latvia and Estonia added rippling blue and white waves to the bottom of their flags to represent their connection to the Baltic, and Belarus added a traditional ornamental pattern to theirs. Even Russia updated their flag by adding a single vertical strip of light blue to represent the vast Russian skies and its long rivers. But these national flags were just for show. They were a simple act of public relations to ease Western fears of a new and expansionist autocratic empire that wouldn't play by the old rules. And that's precisely what the world had in store with Joseph Stalin's Soviet empire. But no matter how great a ruler or terrible a regime, all reigns end the same. People grow old, and then they die. After nearly 30 years as General Secretary of the Communist Party, Joseph Stalin died on March 5, 1953, at the age of 74. His successor was his old right-hand man by the name of Nikita Khrushchev, and he was determined to take the Soviet Union on a new path forward. Publicly, Khrushchev wanted to rebrand the Soviet Union from the brutal and violent dictatorship of Stalin to one that was more in line with traditional socialist ideals. When he rose to power, Khrushchev ushered in an era that we call de-Stalinization, which was the total repudiation of Stalin's rule and his crimes, but most importantly his cult of personality, which Khrushchev saw as inconsistent with a pure iconoclastic communist ideology. Along with freeing the political prisoners from the gulags and denouncing the purges, Khrushchev removed hundreds of monuments to Stalin across the Soviet Union and even changed the name of Stalingrad to Volgograd, even though Khrushchev himself fought in the famous Battle of Stalingrad during World War II. He also removed Stalin's name from the national anthem, which Stalin had implemented there in 1944. Instead, Khrushchev had the anthem focus less on the flawed men of Soviet history and more on the infallible symbol of the state. Quote, "Strong in our friendship, tried by fire, long may our crimson flag inspire, shining in glory for all men to see." On August 19, 1955, Khrushchev cemented the post-Stalin era with a new modern flag for the Soviet Union. The length of the sickle's blade was reduced to look less militaristic, and the handle of the hammer was altered to fit more neatly atop the sickle. The star, the hammer, and the sickle were all cut in size in direct repudiation of the outsized influence that Stalin claimed during his 30-year reign. And the image of the flag was transitioned from a hardened banner of revolution and war to one claiming to be a reformed and modern state one that could be seen as an equal among the community of civilized nations. And for the next three and a half decades, the Soviet flag would remain unchanged. The crimson red banner of Bolshevism and the hammer and sickle of one-party rule would represent the unity of the Soviet republics and the strength of their Marxist-Leninist ideology until the Soviet Union's final dissolution on December 26, 1991. Until the mid-1980s, Moscow had maintained relative political stability and control over the communist nations in the Eastern Bloc. On the one hand, they offered loans, funded projects, and provided security to keep the communist experiment running behind the Iron Curtain. And on the other, they used extreme force and violent coercion to repress any movement deemed excessively nationalist, whether that meant using the secret police to torture and intimidate dissidents or deploying troops and tanks to crush democratic rebellions in the Soviet sphere of influence. For example, the Hungarian Revolution of 1956, spurred on by student protests demanding free elections and national autonomy, did not stand a chance against the might of the Red Army. While the revolution succeeded in taking the country within a few weeks, it would be crushed in just a few days. The world watched on in horror, as Red Army tanks rolled through the streets of Budapest in a show of extreme force by Moscow. Tens of thousands of Hungarians were arrested, hundreds of students were executed, and those who managed to escape left in exile by the hundreds of thousands. So oppressive was their reign that it wasn't until 1989, when Hungary declared its independence, that it was legal to acknowledge that the revolution even happened. The most infamous act of Soviet repression, however, came 12 years later during the Prague Spring of 1968. Alexander Dubček was Czechoslovakia's reformist leader at the time, and he enacted some democratic reforms, including decentralization of the economy and the loosening of restrictions on the freedoms of speech and of the press. He would famously call these popular reforms socialism with a human face. But the Soviet leader at the time, Leonid Brezhnev, would have none of it. The General Secretary declared that, quote, "...when forces hostile to socialism try to turn the development of some socialist country towards capitalism, it becomes not only a problem for the country concerned, but a common problem and concern of all socialist countries." Quote. On the evening of August 20, 1968, the Soviet Union, Bulgaria, Poland, Poland, and Hungary invaded Czechoslovakia with 200,000 troops and 2,000 tanks putting an end to the democratic reforms with a show of overwhelming force known as the Brezhnev Doctrine this type of military intervention in other communist states would become the backbone of Soviet foreign policy for the next 20 years but it was also the Prague Spring that drove a massive wedge between the Soviet Union and the east and the far-left parties of the West. While the Soviets succeeded in maintaining control over Czechoslovakia, their harsh military crackdown forever turned Western socialist parties away from their old ideological ally in Moscow. And because of the Prague Spring, the revolutionary banner that to many stood for international socialism and the rights of the proletarian, once again became a symbol of militarism and repression, just as it had under Joseph Stalin. As the Cold War dragged on, bribery, corruption, and repression would become the status quo of the Soviet Union. That is, of course, until the ascension of Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985. While Gorbachev was a true believer in the Marxist Leninist ideology, he came to power during a time of economic stagnation, a failing war in Afghanistan and growing public discontent within the Soviet state. The Soviet financial crisis was only exacerbated by their arms race with the United States, whose own hardline anti-communist president, actor Ronald Reagan, did all he could to undermine the international standing of the USSR, which he famously termed the evil empire. But, unfortunately for Gorbachev, it was his own attempts at reviving the Soviet economy and improving Soviet civil society that triggered the collapse of the Bolshevik state. Between 1985 and 1988, he instituted several reform packages to kickstart the Soviet economy and bring the nation back into the modern world. These reforms included perestroika, which is a restructuring of its central economy, glasnost, which was meant to allow a freer exchange of ideas, information, and press, and democratization, which was to enable some non-communists to run for local elections. Altogether, Gorbachev believed that these reforms could make the Soviet Union stronger, more unified, and more competitive against the ever-powerful United States. By reforming the rigid policies and ending their imperial wars, Gorbachev knew that the Red Banner of Lenin, could once again represent an equal and alluring alternative to the decadence of Ronald Reagan and the West. But instead, his reforms would trigger the collapse of communism in Europe and kick off the disintegration of the Soviet state. For example, by loosening the press, many Soviet citizens found out for the first time just how worse off their lives were than those in the West after decades of propaganda telling them the opposite and free local elections proved just how unpopular the Communist Party had become, with election after election going to the independents over the state-sponsored candidates. In early 1990, six of the 15 Soviet republics voted the Communist Party out of power altogether, and a year later, Lithuania and Estonia declared their independence after a brief and violent clash with Soviet troops. By the summer of 1991, Communism in Europe was on its last legs. And in June, Russia elected an ex-communist named Boris Yeltsin as their first democratically elected president. And to the horror of the weakening Soviet leadership, Yeltsin declared Russia to be an independent state. Seeing the writing on the wall, Gorbachev pushed through what was called the New Union Treaty. In a last-ditch effort to save the Soviet Union from collapse... This treaty would have replaced the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics with the Union of Soviet Sovereign Republics, a significant change that, among other things, would have meant that not all states would have to be communist. This would have converted the unified state of the USSR into a coalition of autonomous, independent republics, but with a shared president, military, and foreign policy. For those who wanted real autonomy, This treaty did not go far enough. But for others, like the communist hardliners in the Kremlin, this treaty gave away far too much power once reserved for Moscow, and they were determined to take it back with force. On August 19, 1991, the Soviet vice president, the defense minister, and the head of the KGB launched a military coup, putting Gorbachev under house arrest and rounding up politicians they saw as disloyal to the true communist cause. With tanks and soldiers in position across Moscow, the leaders of the coup shut down radio stations and newspapers and declared the reinstitution of the old Soviet Guard. And they even asserted that they were going to recapture Lithuania and the other former Soviet states. But across the USSR, massive protests and strikes broke out, and Russian civilians joined military regiments loyal to Boris Yeltsin in opposition to the coup. In some of the most dramatic scenes from the three-day standoff, civilian demonstrators in Moscow raised the old white, blue, and red tricolor flag above their barricades, effectively transforming the old czarist banner into the flag of democratic reform, and the red flag as one of autocracy, a complete 180 from what we saw during the revolutions of 1905 and 1917. And in an iconic photograph on August 22nd, after the leaders of the coup surrendered, Boris Yeltsin declared victory by waving the Russian tricolor flag in front of thousands of his Democratic supporters. August 22nd has since become a public holiday in Russia called National Flag Day. Then on December 17th, After a long meeting with the Soviet Premier, Yeltsin publicly declared that by New Year's Eve there will be, quote, no more red flag, and that the Soviet Union will officially cease to exist. Left with no other choice, Mikhail Gorbachev resigned as president of the Soviet Union on December 25, 1991, declaring that the Soviet Union was no more. And in a short ceremony that evening, the Soviet flag, this crimson banner of Bolshevism, with the hammer and sickle of the Communist Party, was lowered from the Kremlin, and in its place, the old white, blue, and red tricolor of Tsar Peter the Great was raised for the first time since 1917, becoming the flag of the new Russian Federation. And the Byzantine double-headed eagle, which had long been replaced by the hammer and sickle, was reinstituted as the Russian coat of arms. However, it wouldn't be until the year 2000, after years of debate, that the tricolor and the double-headed eagle were officially adopted as symbols of the state. But if you thought that was the end of the red flag in Russia, think again. Only four years later, the communist flag was back in the streets of Moscow, but this time in an eerily different context. So how did Yeltsin let this happen? Well, following the collapse of the USSR... The Russian economy was in the toilet, and in response, communist nostalgia was quickly on the rise. This was especially true among the veterans and the elderly, who had long relied on a welfare state that for decades was guaranteed by the Soviet government. Say what you want about communism, and I certainly have this entire episode, but the Soviet constitution did guarantee free and universal health care, state-sponsored welfare for the old, sick disabled and retired, maternity leave and childcare, as well as the universal right to free education. Even under a repressive state, these entitlements were undoubtedly hard to just give up. In fact, for much of the 1996 presidential election, Boris Yeltsin was actually trailing his communist challenger, who ran on a return to the welfare state under the illegal crimson red flag of the Soviet Union. So, in April 1996, in an effort to steal some of that socialist limelight for himself, Yeltsin signed a decree legalizing the red victory flag, which he described as a symbol of Russia's victory over fascism and Nazi Germany. The same man who once declared there will be no more red flag, Boris Yeltsin told the press that he believed the red flag had become the symbol of Russians' loyalty to their country, the continuity of Russian history, and the unity of generations. True to his word, on May 9, 1996, during the Moscow Victory Day parade marking the Soviet victory over Germany, the Stalin-era flag that once flew over the Reichstag in Berlin was elevated to equal legal status as the Russian tricolor flag. And on every victory day since, as well as on an increasing number of national holidays, the Soviet flag is flown alongside the tricolor and marched around in military procession. This move helped Yeltsin narrowly defeat his communist challenger in a runoff election, sneaking by with just 52% of the vote. But what distinguishes the victory banner of today from the old Soviet flag is that it bears the name of the unit that raised it over Berlin, written in Cyrillic letters of the Russian alphabet. According to a brilliant essay by Professor Jeremy Hicks at Queen Mary University of London, The Cyrillic lettering, quote, insists on its Russianness, its unique resonance in a Russian-speaking space, and on its association with Soviet martial glory and military feats of arms. The rituals the flag is displayed in further cement the sense that this is not an internationalist flag, but a specifically Russian symbol. The flag has become a nationalist symbol, the very opposite of a symbol of world revolution and of socialism, end quote. So, is that what the Red Banner means in Russia today? Does it still represent Marxism and the rights of the worker? Or has the Red Banner of International Revolution become just another cheap flag of nationalist longing? Well, to answer that, let's take a quick look at the man who's benefited most from the resurgence of Soviet nostalgia in the last few years. I'm speaking, of course, about Russian President Vladimir Putin. It's well known that the Russian president is a former officer of the KGB, and he's been quoted ad nauseum as having said that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. But putting this aside, one of the many differences between Putin and his predecessors, both Boris Yeltsin and Dmitry Medvedev, is that Putin has shown more than just a soft spot for relics of the Soviet past. On December 25th, 2000, Only one year into his presidency, Putin had the Russian national anthem set to the tune of the old anthem of the Soviet Union, for which he had the majority of public support. Then in 2002, Vladimir Putin brought back the Soviet-era Red Star as Russia's military emblem, as well as restoring the Red Banner as the flag of the army. And in 2007, when his own United Russia Party, introduced a law to strip the hammer and sickle from the victory banner, saying that it does not belong among the symbols of modern Russia, Putin personally intervened to stop them from removing the communist symbol from the flag. Slowly but surely, drip by drip over the past 21 years, Vladimir Putin has reinstated Soviet-era symbolism into the civil and military spaces. All the while, assuming an authoritarian-style grip, Over Russian politics. Most disturbingly, the victory banner and the old Soviet flag have become some of the more primary symbols of the ultra nationalist Russian backed separatists who've been fighting the Ukrainian government on behalf of Russia since 2014. So, to me, watching the slow but deliberate reintroduction of Soviet flags over the past two decades, it's clear that Lenin's red banner of revolution can no longer be seen as the flag of international socialism. It is now the flag of Russian ultranationalism. It's now a banner used by an authoritarian president to rally his people around the imagined past and glory of the failed Soviet state. And it has been an overwhelming success. In 2002, a prominent Russian human rights activist observed this resurgence of symbolic nostalgia as a clear and deliberate plan by Vladimir Putin to broaden his base of support. She says, quote, No one is left out. The communists have their anthem, the conservatives have a double-headed eagle, and the Democrats have their tricolor flag. It makes one wonder what kind of national ideology such a state could possibly have. End quote. But after 21 years of Vladimir Putin in office, I don't think we need to wonder that much longer. The tricolor flag, the double-headed eagle, the communist anthem, the crimson-red banner? They mean nothing. And how could they? How can the flags of czarism, communism, democracy, and Eastern Orthodoxy all be the symbols of the same state and represent a single coherent ideology? It is my opinion that they simply cannot. Through the past two episodes, we've explored the rich, proud, tragic, and often complex history of Russia. And over the past 1,200 years, from the Kievan Rus to Alexander II, and from the Soviet Union to the early Russian Federation, we discussed the evolution of these flags and symbols that were deeply rooted in both history and religion. And whether we agree with them or not, whether we celebrate that history or condemn it, these flags used to stand for something. But today, Russia is neither czarist nor communist, no longer democratic nor imperialist. But because of Putin, Russia now openly uses all the flags of all those disparate eras for his own nationalist political agenda. By elevating every flag and symbol, he has in essence devalued and destroyed the meaning of them all. They have nothing in common besides that they are now the empty symbols of the nationalist agenda, of an increasingly authoritarian state led by an increasingly unpredictable president. And while I personally believe that all flags can be dangerous tools of nationalism, I am also a student of history with a show about flags. So I can't help but be disappointed at what he's done to destroy and degenerate these symbols of their national past for his own devious gain. But that is what flags can do. That is the inherent danger that flags, when wielded as weapons as they so often are, pose to the world. And as we watch Russia are closer to war against their neighbors in Ukraine, I can only hope that the Russian people will one day reclaim their country and their national flag with a return to an era of peace and democratic promise they were so close to attaining on that cold December night in 1991 when the red flag came down and the tricolor rose again. That's it for this special two-part episode on the Russian flag, Czar's and the Third Rome. You can read the show notes and check out all the flags we mentioned at flagpodcast.com, and make sure to follow Why the Flag on Instagram at flagpod. Subscribe to Why the Flag on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher, and don't forget to give us five stars in the app. It really helps. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.